The following podcast is sponsored by Financial Sense Wealth Management. To learn more about our investment services, go to FinancialSenseWealth.com or give us a call at 888-486-3939. This is the Financial Sense News Hour. Now, here's the Financial Sense News Team. Well, there are some key climate goals set for the world over the next couple of decades. 2030 is one of them, 50% reduction in carbon emissions, and by 2050, 100%. How realistic is this, and what will it require in terms of materials, energy, and money? Joining us on the program is Mark Mills. He's a physicist at the Manhattan Institute. He's also a faculty fellow at Northwestern University and a partner with Montrose Lane an energy tech venture fund, and I might add a very prolific author. Mark, let's talk about this transition. In California, I don't think you'll be able to drive a diesel truck into the state by 2030, no gasoline engines by 2035. Right. Right. What people don't realize, Mark, and this is something I'd like you to get into, they have no idea. You think of EVs, ah, it's clean. You don't see smell any diesel or any kind of exhaustion. Windmills look clean. Solar panels, I have my roof. They look clean. Gosh, I feel good that we're doing that. They don't understand what kind of raw materials go in almost five to six times the amount on an EV. Let's get into that. Sure. I think that's where the mythology begins. It's the pivot around which a lot of the mythological view of some kind of environmental nirvana by using electric vehicles and windmills and solar panels instead of conventional energy. The problem with most visions about so-called clean energy or renewable energies, both those words are elastic and misnomers. Uh, Clean is in the eyes of the beholder. There's no such thing as clean anything in the way that people define clean. That is, you have to dig things out of the earth and use chemicals and big machinery to manufacture all energy systems, whether it's a combustion turbine, a nuclear plant, wind turbine, solar arrays, or a battery for electric cars. Everything begins with mining. Every product, every service begins with mining. And mining involves access to critical minerals, the atoms that are used to make all the machines, copper, nickel, iron, obviously, aluminum, with lithium batteries, beyond obvious lithium, things like manganese, cobalt, graphite, and a whole suite of minerals are needed to make anything. So if you were serious about any subject, like an EV replacing internal combustion engine, you'd want, to, you'd want to know what the supply chain is, what kind of minerals are used, what it takes to get those minerals, how much of them you need, where they're produced, and the environmental and economic costs associated with all the minerals. Again, it's beyond obvious electric vehicles are different than internal combustion engines, but the difference is distilled in the sort of engineering physics of the world to a very specific and simple fact. An EV to perform with the equivalent range and features that people like uh, weighs a lot more than a conventional car and almost entirely because of the battery. The battery weighs about a thousand pounds in a typical EV. It's replacing about 80 pounds of gasoline. And that thousand pound battery, because it's made up of copper, aluminum, nickel, manganese, cobalt, and other materials, that thousand pound, single thousand pound battery requires the mining and digging up of about 500,000 pounds of the earth to fabricate the one battery. All of that mining happens somewhere. All of it involves heavy diesel machinery. All of it involves grinding and refining processes that entail massive quantities of chemicals that are used to leach out the small share of metals that are in the ore. You know, copper occurs in copper ore at a 
ratio of about 1%. That is, one ton of copper requires digging up about 100 tons of the earth. It's unlike oil. It's unlike iron. It's all the metals and minerals that are so-called energy minerals are much rarer in the earth's crust, therefore involve much more mining. Bottom line is that stuff involves environmental impacts, involves carbon dioxide emissions, in, involves uh, geopolitics, depending on where it's done. It's mostly done not in America. Some United States is a energy net energy exporter of hydrocarbons, a huge importer of all the critical minerals. We 100% depend on about 18 critical minerals. We import more than half of another two dozen. China is the utter dominant supplier of refined energy minerals, whether it's copper or aluminum or graphite for all lithium batteries. Lithium itself, their market share in those energy minerals is double OPEC's market share in oil. That has geopolitical relevance as its economic relevance. It also has relevance in terms of the operational efficacy and the long-term costs of electric vehicle. It's not that one is inherently better or worse than the other. So the notion that EVs are simpler or better is just not true in the engineering physics. They're differently complicated. They have different features, but they're not inherently better. And they're certainly not inherently simpler. There's, as I said, they're, they're differently complex. The battery in an EV, that thousand ton battery, is made up of thousands of components, control systems, cooling systems, and safety systems, and power electronics, structural systems. That sounds an awful lot like an internal combustion engine, which is made up of hundreds, sometimes thousands, but usually hundreds of components to to perform electromechanical feet, whereas a battery is performing electrochemical feet. Both of them are complex. They're just complex cities are just in different places. The fuel tank in a conventional car is very simple. The propulsion system in an EV is simple. Both of them use electric motors, as it turns out, big ones and small ones. So that underlying fact in chasing down both the energy and economic consequences and emissions consequences, and again, these reliability and supply chain consequences, is where most analysts are not being serious or not being sufficiently curious, maybe the most polite way to put it. You know, the other issue that they bring up is, and we've been discussing here, EVs take five to six times the amount of raw materials than a combustion right. engine. But to get those raw materials, you need diesel fuel, those big right. loaders, crushers, yeah. and yet they're trying to shut down exploring for energy. You've got Wall Street getting seats on the sure. boards of Exxon, trying to get them to divest of producing energy. So if we have less diesel fuel or it gets more expensive, <laughs> what does right. this do to mineral exploration? Well, the question answers itself. <laughs> Prices go up. The energy cost to make a battery, to put this in sort of macro terms, takes about 100 barrels of oil equivalent of energy to fabricate enough batteries to hold the equivalent of one barrel of oil of energy. So there's a lot of energy involved in making batteries. Obviously, once you've made it, it lasts for a long time. But let me address two things that are relevant to this. One is sort of shadow boxing. For those who follow this issue, you've probably seen and you may have heard a lot of people claiming, oh, look, you know, people who say things like I just said are not counting the weight of all the oil and gas. You know, it has tonnage too. That has to be replaced and used over the life of a car. I, the fact I just gave, a little factoid that 80 pounds of gasoline tank, that range requires a thousand pound battery. The thousand pound battery, it just gets refueled magically with electricity, electromotive force, but it doesn't have to be replaced because I have to put 80 pounds of gasoline in the tank every few hundred miles. So the physical weight difference is far greater than the five to eight X that you mentioned. The physical difference in total 
material footprint to build the vehicle, the factor is more like 100x. You have more like 100 times more total materials required extracted from the earth to build an EV compared to a conventional vehicle. But then if I count the weight of stuff I have to put in the conventional vehicle to burn it, say over a 10-year life, then that 100-fold gap does collapse down to 5 to 10-fold. That's true. So, And one should count both. So the claim that one is ignoring that is a specious claim. One does count that. You count all the steel and all the weight of oil and materials and chemicals need to make gasoline, to refine it, and to deliver it to your car. When you count the entire ecosystem for both, the EV path is 10 times more material intensive and therefore 10 times more energy intensive to do. And that energy consequence, using diesel fuel means high-priced diesel fuel will increase the cost of those materials, as you say, but it also has another effect. It means that making the battery, making the EV, causes CO2 emissions somewhere else. So EVs emit CO2 in ways that are different than an internal combustion engine. Internal combustion engine essentially emits all of its CO2 when it's operating, burning the fuel. EVs essentially emit all of their CO2 when they're not operating to build them in the first place and to recharge them, refuel them when they're parked. Again, it's a switch in features as opposed to an elimination of a feature. And let's not forget, even though if you have a combustion engine, you've got to put gasoline in it every single week. If you have an EV, you have to charge it every week. I own one. And charging it requires electricity, which requires energy, whether you're getting it from nuclear, a nat gas, or coal plants. You got to add that into the equation too, don't you? Well, sure. And so at the high level of abstraction, and right now we've distorted the market by doing all kinds of subsidies, implicit and explicit in the EV world. So people who are charging their cars, like you with an EV, are getting a subsidy that's direct and indirect from everybody else on the electric grid because the additional costs associated with EV charging are not borne by EV users. You also get to avoid the road tax. And one thing I can say about taxes is that we can guarantee that bureaucrats and policymakers will find ways to extract those taxes from you as EV scales rise up. So the billions of dollars that are collected on a gasoline tax to maintain roads, that's where the road fund comes from, will be attached to an EV kilowatt hour the way they're attached to a gasoline gallon. But the issue with EVs for everybody, let me just stipulate something here. I like EVs. You enjoy when you like them. There's a huge market for EVs. There's going to be millions and millions of more EVs, tens of millions of more EVs, because they have high utility value for many people, especially multi-car households. And for people with garages who happen to own a garage and have multi-cars, charging an EV at their home overnight is convenient, beyond obvious. So the issue that's in play here is the idea that everybody should drive an EV. We should mandate and require both by banning the purchase of internal combustion engines and mandating and subsidizing the purchase of EVs. So at a high level of abstraction, your point about energy is important. Roughly speaking, the amount of energy that goes into light vehicles, cars and light trucks, these SUVs, is roughly the same amount of energy that we use to produce electricity for other purposes. So the two markets are roughly the same size, the non-transportation electric market and the transportation energy market. If we try to put the transportation market into the electric market, you have to roughly double the size of your ability to produce electricity. I mean, just roughly speaking, the energy has to come from somewhere. So you're just shifting an energy burden. And the idea that we're going to shift it all to wind and solar is fanciful to say, at the least, extremely expensive. The idea that wind and solar are cheap, I realize in everybody's head, we've been told over and over again, it's cheaper. I would just say this, it's a whole separate subject. Every state and every country in the world, without exception, where the penetration of wind and solar increases on the grid, the cost of electricity is rising and there are no exceptions. So the energy trade is important. You have to produce the energy, as you say. But there's another trade that people are ignoring 
especially its advocates, that has an astonishing economic cost. And it's not the energy trade. It's something that in electrical engineering, is most people, as soon as I explain it to you, you'll understand, don't think about. It's the power challenge. And by that, I mean this. If I told you that your car had a 100 horsepower engine or a 1,000 horsepower engine, that would tell you something about the power it has. That tells you nothing about the energy available that's all in the fuel tank or your battery, whichever you prefer to use. The amount of energy involved and the power are related but different things. A thousand horsepower engine is a more expensive engine than a hundred horsepower engine. And it tells you nothing about how far the car will go with the engine. It tells you how fast it'll go, but not how far it'll go. This is important in electrical engineering terms. If you have an electric vehicle and you want to charge it, the power of the system to charge it determines how fast you can charge the battery, not how fast the car will go, how fast you can charge the battery. Higher power, you can charge the battery faster. So the home charger is a low power charger, charges your battery overnight. If you want to use an electric vehicle for everyday purposes, you're going to have to charge it on the road. Obviously, overnight's not convenient. To get superchargers to work in 30 to 40 minutes, we have to use fantastically higher power. When you go to higher power electrical charging system, it has exactly the same economic features going to higher power internal combustion engine, if you like. I'm using simplistic analogy. So the charger in your overnight garage system, it's a few kilowatts, costs a few thousand dollars. To charge your car fast, you have to have high power. The supercharger is at several hundred kilowatts. And it doesn't cost a few thousand dollars. It costs several hundred thousand dollars, as it turns out. A regular gasoline pump costs one half to one tenth as much, depending on the kind of comparisons we're making. But roughly speaking, just averaging it out about fourfold higher cost to power a battery refuel it on the road compared to the cost to refuel a car on the road. The car gets refueled in four minutes, even with a supercharger, you're taking 40 minutes. You can see where I'm going with this. You're going to need a lot more superchargers than you do regular gasoline pumps. So you're going to need four to five times the number of superchargers so people don't have to wait in lines for hours. And each of the fueling ports is going to cost three to five times as much. So you're going to end up spending roughly speaking, at least 10 times as much just for the power infrastructure to make EVs for everybody practical, which is translates into hundreds of billions of dollars of electrical infrastructure upgrade that is a totally independent issue from the upgrades for more energy production to make the electricity in the first place. So we quickly get into trillions of dollars of capital have to be deployed in hardware, both to power the chargers and to fuel the chargers be needed for all these EVs. This is why I keep talking about this as an impossible dream, because I think it's it's a practical matter, impossible to believe that governments are going to spend that level of money, in fact, build the infrastructure as fast as imagined in these 10-year goals. I want to talk about the elephant in the room that goes along this, and that is the amount of raw materials that are necessary to make this EV transition. And one of the things we're invested in mining companies, and one of the things I've been following is the ore grades have been in decline. So they have to to mine more dirt to get the same amount of materials. And we're seeing things like copper shortages in the next couple of years in other key material. Any comments? Well, as you're an investor in minerals, you understand something that most people don't know, which is the challenges in finding and opening new mines and the underlying geological challenge to your point of declining ore grades, which is not a phenomenon that's amenable to uh, waving a magic wand and saying, I'm going to apply AI to it. AI doesn't change the geophysics of the planet Earth. It will certainly accelerate our ability to do analytics about the planet, but it doesn't change the nature of the planet. So you're pointing out something that's really important, and that also gets distorted in the 
enthusiast's reaction to the challenges that an all EV future will create. We know for a fact that building electric vehicles requires more minerals, more materials. It, in tonnage, a 10x increase, but that's not the real point. That's the old, comparing tons of steel to tons of copper or tons of oil to tons of copper, magnesium, and lithium is completely interesting when it comes to CO2 emissions, but completely irrelevant when it comes to the access to the underlying resource. The metals, copper, lithium, cobalt, manganese, nickel, are low ore grade materials compared to iron. And they also are very different than oil and gas because in effect, they have oil and gas have very, very high, high grades. A pool of oil is a pool of oil, if you like. So what we do know is that the world is not now mining they're planning to mine, as you point out, enough copper, never mind the rest of the more exotic metals. Copper is sort of the long pole in the tent. The world will need something like two to 300% more copper to build all the EVs that are imagined in the next decade. So the question you would ask if you're serious is, is the world actually planning to increase its copper mining and production capacity by two to 300% within a decade? Since it takes a decade to 15 years to open a new mine, the question is easy to answer. And we know the answer. Platts did a great study. And this is Dan Jurgen is, is a vice chairman of the, uh, we moved Sierra into uh, Platts. They did a great study last year looking just at copper and they've updated the study this past summer, expanding to two or three other of the critical energy minerals. And they pointed out that the world's not short copper right now because that a few percent of vehicles being all battery, you are pulling a lot of copper from the markets, but as a share of all uses for copper, the battery market is still, and but most uses for copper, as I'm sure you know, are in the construction business for houses and buildings. And that market's about tenfold bigger than the EV market. But by middle part of this decade, the EV market will be bigger than the construction market for copper. It's going to demand more copper than we now use for all other purposes. This is a crazy trajectory. The world's not making enough copper. And this has nothing to do with there's enough copper on planet Earth. I and mean, I've been accused, it'd be sort of the deepest cut I've ever received maybe in recent years to be accused of being a Malthusian that I don't think there's enough copper in the world. There's plenty of copper. There's no shortage of anything on planet Earth. I'm a cornucopian, as they say. There's lots of materials and minerals. The issue is, how long does it take to get to them? Are you allowed to get to them? Are you allowed to do what's required to get to them? When it comes to mining, we know an awful lot. The IEA has pointed out that the average time from decision to opening a new mine is 16 years globally. That's the average. So in my optimistic world, let's assume the whole world decides that we're going to be far kinder to the regulatory and permitting process and environmentalists don't oppose new mines, which is not what's going on. And we can cut that time down to 10 years to the combination of favorable policies, new technologies, AI to help us find good ore grades, robots to help dig it. So we cut it, almost cut it in half to eight to 10 years. You have to be starting tomorrow to have enough copper and no one's starting tomorrow. The investment decisions that are made by the global miners are public information, and they're not investing anywhere close to enough. So we'll be short copper very soon, to your point, in a couple of years, if this continues. What happens, again, forget the rest. You need copper for everything. You need copper for the charging systems I just mentioned. All the transformers, all the distribution wires are copper. Copper is essentially non-substitutable in nearly every purpose in the electric motors and almost 90% or more of the uses for copper, there are no viable substitutes. And if there are substitutes, they're not economic substitutes. And then they're only in the tiny niche of the market. So you need copper. It's an all copper play. So what happens if the world builds all these battery and EV factories demanding copper and we're short copper and all the people who are building buildings and commercial buildings and appliances and motors for other purposes are demanding copper? Price of copper goes up. Of course it does. And there'll be winners and losers who were willing to pay the higher price. And I'm betting the 
EV makers are not going to be the ones who'll be bidding in the price. They'll be bidding the price up, but they're not going to be getting it. So you'll have a, you'll have higher priced EVs and lower availability and higher priced everything else made from copper and lower availability. That's called inflation, by the way. So it's deeply inflationary, deeply economically destructive, and it won't produce more copper. Now, it will eventually. I guarantee 99% of your audience is thinking, oh, wait, markets respond to high prices. They'll produce more stuff if the prices go up. Of course. Question again is, how long does it take? And the how long it takes is not just the engineering reality, how long it takes to build a mine. It's the conviction on the part of the investor, the person who owns the mine or wants to build a mine, that the prices will stay high enough, long enough to reap the profits from the lower quality ore, back to your ore grade, that will be mined at a higher cost to sell in the future when the mine eventually opens. And if you think, if you're an investor and mines cost five to $10 billion a pop, if you think there's some chance that halfway through your five to $10 billion of investing, the world discovers copper is really expensive and cancels all these silly goals to demand only EVs, then the price of copper is going to collapse and you're stuck holding the bag with a half-finished mine, billions of dollars in investment in a low-price world for copper. That's great for the consumer, not so good for the copper company or the copper investor. Let's talk about another reality as well. And I never understood environmentalists on this. They want clean, but as we have been discussing here, you need raw materials, which means mines. And you you need to open up new mines, but good luck trying to open up a mine. I can think of four or five mines that have been canceled or have not been allowed to get the permits. So it's kind of like I'm for green and clean as long as it comes from someplace else. Well, and even the someplace. So the United States has been a hostile territory to mining for several decades. And to your point, you can Google up the number of mines whose permits took years and millions of dollars to obtain in the United States, new copper and nickel mines, were summarily novated, canceled by this administration's EPA. I think those companies will eventually get the permits because it was illegal to cancel them because they met all the rules and they had permits that were about to be issued that were fully compliant with all the extant regulations and laws. But it'll take years and millions of dollars. As one mining CEO told me who saw his permit canceled uh, summarily, is that I'm probably won't be alive. I certainly won't be the CEO of this company by the time we win the lawsuit against the feds. So we're hostile to it. And so the mining's elsewhere. We know this because that's what's been going on for three decades. Now, environmental groups and I guess you could say you can't blame them, who hate mines are also demonstrating that they don't like mines elsewhere. So this is, this is not going to end well. I Just last uh, couple of weeks, one of the biggest copper mines in the world in Panama, the owner operator is a Canadian company. The Canadian company is looking to expand that mine because of the global demand for copper and in the process of spending something on the order of six or seven billion dollars to expand that mine. And the Panamanian government has decided to ratchet down on, under pressure from environmentalists, the, the regulations and permits and may in fact not even allow the expansion to continue. It might even in principle, I guess, revoke their license to operate. So they're going to have a national referendum in Panama about that mine, whether it, should, which, whether it should be allowed to expand, or I guess in principle, even allowed to operate. That caused, of course, the stock price is the publicly traded company to collapse in one day by about 50%. So the market is responding in the sense of caution. You could see why. And environmentalists are mounting ever more fierce opposition to new mines. In fact, northern Spain has some very rich lithium ore bodies, which the European Union's banks sought to subsidize while they're canceling and prohibiting capital investments in oil and gas in the EU, they are subsidizing investments in much more challenging extractive industries, mining in the EU. However, when that 
company that was given the permission, if you like, and subsidies to go map out the ore body to begin the process of opening a mine. The protests were so extensive and so vigorous, so vicious, frankly, that the mining company just threw up their hands and said, you know, we're not going to do this. We'll keep importing uh, refined lithium from China. China, by the way, refined 60% of the world's lithium for use in electric car batteries and is expanding its market share on that as the rest of the world's market share shrinks. And by, t- by say expanding, they've been actively investing and in, the, in recent months have expanded their active investment, both in mines outside of China, but refineries in China. Same is true in Africa, same is true in much of South America. So it's a industry that is extraordinarily important for everything in society, but is now being damaged economically and structurally because of a, I guess I'll use a diplomatic term, wildly unrealistic push for subsidies and mandates to increase the quantities of minerals mined by a level that's unprecedented in human history. The level of mining that must increase to feed the construction of wind, solar, and batteries is between 700% and 7,000%. A 700% to a 7,000% in the supply of various critical minerals has to occur in the next decade or two to feed the ambitions and the goals for the so-called energy transition, wind, solar, and batteries. These are levels of demand increase on minerals that have never ever been met in history and are, maybe there's no other word for it, insane. <laughs> it's just, it's an it's, it's a utterly insane consequence that, you know, it sounds like, like hyperbole to say, and it won't happen. It just, because like that old adage, if it can't happen, it won't happen. You know, the other issue that we need to talk about here. So we're talking about wind, solar to provide the power for these EVs. Let's also talk about the rest of transportation, how we move goods around the planet. You're talking about airplanes. You're talking about ships. You're talking about trucks. You're talking about trains. What do we do? Are are they going to be electric too? I don't see, at least you're you're an engineer, so you probably know this better than I do, but I don't see a 787 Dreamliner on batteries up in the air. Well, first to be correct, I worked as an engineer because I couldn't get a job as a physicist at first, but then I finally got a job as a scientist. So I've worked as both. So I understand something about both disciplines and they're very different disciplines as as you know. And then I worked in finance a little bit and that's when I discovered the money is what really matters. The physics and engineering determines often the economics, but sometimes the physics and engineering determines what's possible in the first place. To your point, there is no prospect, none, zero, not a bupkis that would be flying dreamliners on batteries in the foreseeable future. We don't have the physics for it. You know, you cannot begin to match the energy density of oil, aviation fuel with batteries that we know how to build. Doesn't mean it's impossible ever. I can speculate on some of the energetics and the physics that might make it possible to make batteries that can match oil. No one has any idea how to do that, how to build such things. We'll be flying small airplanes, short distances on batteries you already are. And I'm very bullish on that, by the way, because there's a high utility value for hybridized um, engine and battery propulsion for drones and air taxis. And I think that's really an intriguing market, but it doesn't replace the markets you've talked about. So for calibration, global transportation of light duty vehicles is a 1.4 billion vehicle market. So if we get to a world from today's roughly 15 to 18 million EVs to hundreds of millions of EVs, which I don't think the copper markets can support right now, but let's just assume it does. And we reduce the copper demands through workarounds. If we get to hundreds of millions of EVs, we won't even replace 10% of the world's oil for exactly the reasons you're pointing out. Less than a third of global oil is used for cars. 
with their equivalent. Two-thirds of the world's oil is used for other transportation and some petrochemical purposes, significant petrochemical purposes. But the rest of the transportation market is far bigger than the car market that's being chased by Elon Musk and all of his wannabes. And it's those markets are extremely difficult to replace oil. Heavy machinery that's used to do the mining for the world. 40% of the world's industrial energy is used by mining. Half of that energy is oil, diesel fuel to dig up stuff, move things, transporting all the world's goods. In fact, let's put it this way, 98% of the global transportation of goods and people is done today by burning oil. And most of the two percentage points left over are not batteries in cars. That's about 0.3%. Most of the rest are things like trains that are electrified, that are possible electrified, single catenary, subways, and a lot of ethanol in Brazil and in the United States. So it's an all oil world, moving the world's goods, moving the world's people at scale, will be oil fired, over 90% oil fired for decades, I'd argue for a century, because oil is a remarkable material. It has attributes that are extremely difficult to match, and the attributes that matter are combined attributes of energy density, safety, and ease of storage. It's really easy to store oil compared to storing energy in electrical form. But yes, you can make an electric backhoe. You can make an electric airplane. You can make an electric train. In fact, one of the, I forget who the vendor was in Europe has announced an electric locomotive, which they're going to use in a hybrid form combined with diesel locomotives in some mine sites. And of course, in hybrid form, it actually has a lot of features because hybridization of engines increases the engine's efficiency, which is a very good purpose for batteries and hybrid architectures in cars and trains. Most mining trucks, are, in fact, are what are called series hybrids. An onboard diesel engine is used to generate electricity, not to connect to a drive shaft. And the electricity is then used to drive electric motors that have a lot of attributes, which are terrific in industrial environments for control and precision. So it's a long way of saying the bottom line is in the day even if you electrify an unachievable share of the world's cars, it has almost no impact on the increased demand for oil in the coming decades. Assuming economies grow at all, we're going to need a lot more planes, a lot more ships, and a lot more trucks. And 90% of them are going to be burning oil. I want to talk about something else that creates a difficulty for this transition. One is weather. So if you're <laughs> doing wind and solar, you got to have sun, you got to have wind. And the other thing with EVs, they do not work very well when the temperature is 20 degrees below zero. Yeah. Well, being a Canadian growing up where it got much colder than 20 degrees below zero, it's <laughs> one of the reasons other than finding a job that I left Canada years ago. But So let's first stipulate that it's possible to do a workaround in the chemistry of batteries to be more cold tolerant. There are many chemistry for chemical formulations that are more cold tolerant and you give up some other things. You give up other features, sometimes a safety feature, sometimes an energy density feature. And there are clearly chemistries that are even more. The new sodium ion batteries, which BYD is now shipping into the world, are very tolerant of low temperatures. They work just fine. They have much lower energy density, so you have to have a heavier battery or give up some range. Like everything else in life, right? Trade-offs. The real issue is not you know, temperature tolerance. It's just in the fundamental fact that the quantity, the sheer quantity of materials is off the chart high, and we're not making up for those materials, nor planning to, that build that many batteries. So the all-EV future is anchored in a magical thinking about what's going to happen to upstream supply chains if we just demand that we have them. We're not building them, and the world's not building them. And the people who are building them 
are typically not our friends or are not easy to work with. The other issue that, in fact, you've written about this and people don't, you know, when I see these environmentalists, you know, slashing paint on climate change and stuff like that, they don't realize this technological world that we live in, whether you're talking about AI, the internet, the cloud, robotics, all this technology comes, it requires energy and requires vast amounts of energy to run. I'm just thinking of what cryptocurrency takes in the name of energy. So comment on that, if you will, because most people don't realize that little cell phone you have in your hand or your little laptop takes a lot of energy. Yeah, you know, it's it's an area that I've, in my schizophrenic life, I work a lot in computing and robotics and automation as well and write a lot about that. My book, as you know, The Cloud Revolution, focuses heavily on those features of our future because those are what's really different. How we're going to produce energy is not going to be very different in the future from the present. It'll be a little different and be better in terms of efficiencies and distribution, flexibilities because of technology, but the primary energy technologies, there's nothing new. But in how we use energy, there's some very new things. And Bitcoin is the least interesting, has always been the least interesting in me. What's always been more interesting is artificial intelligence, which is what everybody's talking, babbling, and worrying about today. Well, AI is the most energy intensive use of silicon ever invented in history, in the history of computing. So let's start with the fact of where we are and where we're going to go, and where we're going to go with respect to computing and AI and adding economic efficiency to our society. Because economic efficiency is a way of saying more growth. More growth means more energy. So even if you just think in macro terms, that if you really believe, as I do, that automation, both AI and physical robots, increases wealth, increases growth, then you're going to have more demand because as people get wealthier, they're going to fly more, more vacations, bigger houses. So that's one of the effects of technology, one of the obvious and immediate indirect effects. But the other is that the technologies themselves require energy to build and operate. To the point in your question, some years ago, I did an analysis and reduced it to a very simplistic observation, is that a typical smartphone as it's typically used, uses more electricity than the refrigerator in your home. And when I published that study a decade ago, it caused Apple to issue a press release, which was a gift to me, by the way, because it got my study a lot of attention. And that's why maybe the one they're ignoring me, ignoring my, my repeated observations on this, because they didn't fix the problem. They pointed out that when you charge your smartphone and your iPhone, and I used iPhone, which is probably what ticked them off. I didn't say smartphone. So your iPhone uses as much electricity as your refrigerator. And if you're millennial, it uses two refrigerators worth of electricity. And they said, oh, contrary, when you plug your iPhone in, uses no more electricity than the nightlight in a child's room. And that's true. The little phone itself, its battery doesn't use much electricity. That phone is worthless without the network. The issue that I had pointed out was the your per phone share of the data center and communications network, the whole infrastructure to make possible what a smartphone does. That one phone's annual use of electricity is equal to the annual use of electricity of a refrigerator in your kitchen. These this an indisputable fact. Now, some phones use a tenth of a refrigerator. Depends how you use it. And we're using it. Some use five refrigerators worth of electricity. In fact, overall, global cloud, the infrastructure that makes the cloud possible, uses roughly as much energy as global aviation. And global cloud is growing faster. And now the energy appetite, come back to AI and Bitcoin. In a sense, Bitcoin is kind of being thinking in energy physics terms. Bitcoin is a special example, a special case for the intensive use of silicon. It's intensive when you do Bitcoin mining because you're running the computer constantly to do the calculation to get an answer to yield a Bitcoin. AI similarly runs constantly. Most computing runs episodically. It doesn't use very much energy compared to AI because to do learning, machine learning, the algorithms run constantly. And the inference part requires running constantly. You can't watch the world 
unless you're watching constantly. You can't analyze a picture without looking at the picture. There's the action consumes energy. Give you a sort of a calibration point, the machine learning algorithm that was used to uh, solve Rubik's Cube. So the people that built ChatGPT first thought it'd be clever to see if a machine learning algorithm could solve Rubik's Cube. And it did. Uh, it took a few months. Then after it learned it once, it could do it, you know, in a fraction, a few seconds. Could do it's a, a person, some people could do it in a few seconds as well. Some find people doing that on YouTube. But the machine learning feature of doing that, that one algorithm doing that one learning task use as much electricity as driving a million Tesla miles. So it's a lot of electricity. What will happen in the future? We'll get more efficient at that. We'll cut the energy used to do machine learning and it'll make machine learning cheaper because that's the nature of efficiency. And we'll do far more tasks in learning how to do Rubik's Cube. Roughly speaking, Google's pointed out that adding AI to a search, which they're doing vigorously in the cloud, increases the energy cost of search by about 400%. I'm sure they'll make more efficient ways to do AI-assisted search and reduce the energy burden by 200%, but then they'll come up with a more clever algorithm that will take more compute power and it will go back to the 400%. That's the do loop that's been going on in compute energy use for 50 years and will keep going on. Elon Musk recently gave an interview before the annual meeting of the Edison Electric Institute, which is the Trade Association for Electric Utilities. And he berated them for not planning on building enough power plants to make enough electricity in the coming future that he thinks is exciting. And he wasn't referring specifically to the need for more power, to your point earlier, to charge up Teslas. He was talking about AI. He understands it's an energy hog. What you're going to hear people say is, well, we'll make it more efficient. So let me state again, increasing the efficiency results in more uses for the tool. If that weren't true, you wouldn't have a smartphone. Your smartphone in your pocket or your purse or wherever you keep it, that smartphone is 10,000 times more energy efficient than a computer of the 1980s. So if it hadn't become 10,000 times more energy efficient, there wouldn't be billions of smartphones in the world. And the world's compute system wouldn't be consuming as much energy as aviation because there wouldn't be a world's compute system. There wouldn't be a world cloud because it would have been impossible to build it. So the efficiency improvements that are coming to AI will drive a second wave of data center expansion, by the way, which has already happened. And that will increase electricity demand. Data centers, individual data centers, use as much electricity as steel mills. And there are far more data centers than there are steel mills being built. There's thousands of them already in the world. We're going to build thousands more to fuel an economically beneficial expansion of the world's sort of AI-infused digital infrastructure. So here we have, in fact, let me distill it to a bottom line, instead of ranting on about AI. As of right now, as of today, all the world's tens of millions of EVs consume 10% as much electricity as the world's cloud. In the future, there will be, call it, 10 times more EVs. But the energy appetite of the world's cloud is going to increase probably by close to tenfold as well. So as we have been discussing here, all of this green transition requires mining. We're not doing right. more mining. In fact, the head of Freeport Copper at a mining conference two weeks yeah. ago said, we're heading for a copper shortage. Yep. We're not doing drilling in all of this, no mining, no drilling, and we're increasing technology, whether it's AI, the cloud. Yeah. To me, I think we're heading to an energy crisis. I mean, you can't be pushing this stuff. Yeah. And I'm seeing it on Wall Street with oil companies. 
They're not drilling. They're doing drilling on Wall Street. They're buying other companies. That doesn't increase the supply. It just increased their own reserves. What do you see? As as you know, the mining companies are doing the same thing. They are principal activity is not aggressive expansion of mines, but mergers and acquisitions to own more capacity to reap the profits in a world that will soon have higher commodity prices. You put your finger on what's worrisome to me. The aspirations that are being... It's one thing to have PowerPoint aspirations and, and make a forecast about how many EVs it will be. It's quite another to require everybody buy an EV, which is what a dozen states are doing. It's quite another to subsidize the construction of wind and solar at levels that amounts to an industrial policy that approaches literally a World War II levels of spending. The Inflation Reduction Act, that Orwellian named Inflation Reduction Act, costed out properly, looks like $2 trillion of spending on so-called energy transition. The World War II, today's dollars cost $4 trillion. This is an unprecedented expense on industrial policy, which which will lead to not just a shortage of minerals and pushing mineral prices up, but it's simultaneously going to lead to a shortage in oil and gas and hydrocarbons in general, which pushes those prices up. It's the worst possible collision for consumers. And I have to say, for the politicians who are pushing these things, it's going to be a really, really ugly denouement politically because consumers are not going to be happy. You think inflation is bad now. I don't wish for this to happen. I think it's extraordinarily destructive politically, economically, and socially to go into a sort of inflationary super cycle on commodities. But high cost energy, which is what green is, suppressing the production of oil and gas creates high cost energy there. And let's make it clear here again, all the wind and solar panels today, which we've spent trillions of dollars building in the Western world, supply less than 4% of the world's energy. 82% of the world's energy still comes from hydrocarbons. There's no overnight transition. So we're making the replacements cost more. We're making the existing energy cost more. We're making the machines that you build these things cost more. We're going to make windmills cost more. They already are. Solar panels are costing more. Electric car batteries costs are going up. The only reason prices are going down is because of an oversupply in the market competing with the only successful EV company in the world, obviously Tesla. It's a extremely uh, worrisome intersection of trends. And it's hard to believe that it won't lead to something that amounts to a political revolt. The only place the political revolt won't have consequences are on truly dictatorial economies, you know, Russia, China. Uh, and even in China, it'll have consequence. But for us and for Europe, it threatens deindustrialization. It's a threat social revolt. It impoverishes the people who can least afford to be impoverished. Expensive energy makes food more expensive. It makes everything that you do to transport more expensive. And throwing out silly claims that that'll just accelerate the shift to EVs. If oil's expensive, more people will buy electric cars. Okay, sure. Electricity is going to get more expensive as well. And electric cars are going to get more expensive and, and lower supply. It's all a uh, viciously interconnected downward cycle instead of a virtuous cycle uplifting our economy, where technology gives people more wealth and more freedoms. This government intervention to demand a, quote, energy transition is a vicious black hole of economic destruction. It's hard to put it any other way than that. Well, I live in California, the land of fruits and nuts. And so we have power outs, the most expensive gasoline. We have most expensive utilities. And I think we're only at around four or five percent EVs. I mean, I think 40 percent of the Teslas sold in the country are in California. You see them everywhere. 
They work well here with the weather, but all of this is expensive. And today's Wall Street Journal is talking about the EV makers are slashing the prices because they're sitting on parking lots. Well, sitting on parking lots because it may be that what's happened is that the early adopter market has been tapped out largely, which is what happens with all new products. And as you know, something in order of 90% of all EVs are sold into markets of two and three car households. Therefore, by definition, the quote luxury car market. So EVs dominate the luxury car market, which is why all the luxury car makers chase Elon Musk and have an option as an EV, you know, get some of their customers back. I get that. But to your point, California is the poster child for what's going wrong. If things get more expensive, less reliable, spread to the rest of the country, I don't think the rest of the country is going to be willing to tolerate that. It really distills to, if you believed, if one were to believe that EVs are inherently cheaper and better, and we're getting cheap fast, let it happen. If you believe that windmills and solar panels are inherently cheaper than burning natural gas or nuclear plants or coal, let the market function as opposed to put your finger on a scale with subsidies, because that's the claim that they're inherently cheaper. Then the claim shifted. They moved the goalposts to say, well, they are needed even if they're expensive to cut carbon dioxide emissions. All right. So let's count the carbon dioxide emissions properly, because they're not. The only government that's done that was France. They undertook a study a year and a half ago to look at the effect of their climate policies to reduce carbon dioxide emissions. It's a government-funded study. It's a government study, not a oil and gas company study. It was not done by Exxon or Chevron. And that study concluded that the actual carbon dioxide emissions of the average French citizens had increased and not decreased over the last decade. Because what was going on is that they were depending on imports to buy goods, quote, that they weren't allowed to or, to or willing or able to produce domestically. And they were basically exporting their carbon dioxide emissions. So they did an honest accounting. Where were they exporting a lot of the emissions to? A lot of the world, but especially China. So I'll end with this obvious observation, which is utterly critical to have in our heads. The goal of all this stuff is to cut carbon dioxide emissions. We all know that. That's what's being stated. It's not like it's an insult. Our government's Energy Information Administration made a forecast based on the most optimistic reductions in CO2 emissions that the full implementation of $2 trillion of spending will get over the next decade. And those reductions in CO2 emissions are chump change globally. They're being wiped out entirely by increased CO2 emissions every two or three years by China alone, and never mind the rest of the world. So while we are impoverishing our country to make a trivial reduction in CO2 emissions by buying these materials and stuff from China, they're increasing their CO2 emissions. So if people were honest about their goal, if if you're really honest, you want to cut CO2 emissions, then the way to do that is not to impoverish America and buy carbon intensive stuff from China. This is not the approach. It's a dishonest approach and it won't achieve the goal. The world will, at the end of the decade, be emitting more CO2, the world's economies, not less. But we may emit less and be impoverished because of it. And the most effective way to cut CO2 emissions is called a recession or a depression, but people don't do anything. We saw that during the lockdown. You want to lock people down and tell them they can't drive? Then they won't burn fuel. But this is, and I'm only being half facetious, I'm being serious. This is the effect of these policies, and they have to be looked at in the context of what's going on in the rest of the world. As we conclude, Mark, if our listeners would like to read one of your books that would give them some insight of the kind of things we've been discussing today, which book would that be? (laughs) Because you've written a lot of them. I would promote my latest book because even though the word energy is not in the title, there's a lot about energy in it. There's a 
whole chapter called The Energy Materials Nexus talks about some things we've been talking about. And also because I'm fundamentally optimistic about the direction of the U.S. economy. But I do think the realities we've been talking about are becoming obvious. They are being written about and talked about uh, in policy circles. They're bubbling up into political circles. So I see the threads unwinding for the insane rush to a so-called energy transition. And we have tremendous economic opportunity because of things like AI, new materials revolutions, which we haven't talked about. My first book was called The Bottomless Web which I co-authored with my old friend, Peter Huber, it was published, we're coming at, well, 15 years ago. It was a science book about energy written for non-experts. It's uh, still valid. Everything we predicted and said then, you can guess from the title, the bottom as well, that we published the book during the period of peak enthusiasm for the theory of peak oil, that we were running out of oil and gas. And we correctly predicted what would happen, even though only essentially one chapter in the book is about oil and gas. It's about energy broadly, the energetics, economics, and engineering physics of energy systems. So, And that book still sells. Uh, so I'm happy if people buy that. But as an educational tool, we saw it assigned in some university classes. It's We were both very proud of that book for what it did at in an educational sense. My latest book is really more of a, a creed a core for stop being pessimistic about the economic future of the country and our ability to compete with China. I really wrote it to point out why the US is the ascended economy of the 21st century and not China. And which one is that? The cloud revolution. All right. Well, Mark, I appreciate being so generous of your time. I wrote an article a while back. One of my clients said, you got to talk to this guy, Mark Mills. You guys think alike. And <laughs> it was a real pleasure and honor to speak with you today. That concludes our weekend edition of the Financial Sense News Hour. To speak with our financial planning and wealth management team, give us a call at 888, that's 888-486-3939. Or you can also visit us on our website, financialsensewealth.com. If you aren't already a subscriber to our weekday podcast and would like to listen to more of our content where we regularly interview book authors, industry experts, and strategists from around the globe, go to Financial Sense and hit the subscribe button. On behalf of Financial Sense NewsHour and the Financial Sense Wealth Management Team, we hope you have a pleasant weekend. Financial Sense News Hour is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a solicitation or offer to purchase or sell any securities. The investments, investment strategies, and investment philosophies discussed or presented on the News Hour each involve their own unique risk factors, which are not discussed on the show. Responses to listener inquiries are based on the personal opinions of the Financial Sense staff and do not take into account listener suitability, objectives, or risk tolerance. Financial Sense News Hour and its parent company shall not be liable for any financial losses that result from investing in any company mentioned in financial sense or arising out of the use of any material on the news hour be advised that you invest at your own risk